4: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: On this episode, a Vietnam War veteran discusses his involvement in a secret UFO crash retrieval program.
5: There was a kidney-shaped door on the side of what you'd call the canopy of the craft. And halfway out was the body of what you would call a typical gray alien. And I immediately turned around and I said, Sir, I need an officer up here. And he went ahead and says, just tell us what you're seeing, son. And I said, no, sir, you don't understand. I need an officer up here. What I'm seeing, I guess can't be real.
0: If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month. Plus, access to my back catalog of episodes. That's over 350 episodes.
4: Richard Serrett.
0: Welcome to your Wednesday Clifford Stone is waiting in the wings to reveal some truly extraordinary information about his work recovering alien technology and alien bodies Before that, one last reminder that my live web conference on digital consciousness with Jim Elvich is happening tomorrow, Thursday, July the 9th at 10.30 p.m. Digital consciousness is a theory that could finally explain all of life's great mysteries. And Jim has been a guest on this podcast, on my radio program, The Conspiracy Show, and of course on Coast to Coast AM. Now, this is a limited access event via Zoom. To register, go to strangeplanet.ca. And under the Events and Appearances tab, click on Web Conferences. All the details are there. A link to register and a Frequently Asked Questions section to answer all of your technical questions for those of you who are new to using Zoom. I'll be sitting in for George Norrie on Coast to Coast AM Friday, July the 10th. And then again, hosting on Saturday, July the 11th. Go to -to coasttocoastam.com for more information and to find an affiliate station near you that carries this amazing late night radio program. In the world of UFO research, the name of retired Army Sergeant Clifford Stone is nearly a legend. Decorated Vietnam combat veteran, he served 22 years. Clifford claims that he led a double life from the late 60s through his retirement in 1990. While officially assigned to an NBC team, that's Nuclear Biological and Chemical Retrieval and Abatement Detail, he asserts that he also served on top-secret UFO crash retrieval missions where he had physical contact with downed ET craft and interactions with captured non-human life forms. The official NBC team assigned allegedly served as a cover for those highly secretive and compartmentalized operations. And over a period of nearly 40 years, Clifford has amassed one of the largest private collections of authentic government documents, clearly establishing the hard reality of the UFO phenomenon. He's the author of UFOs Are Real and Eyes Only, The Story of Clifford Stone and UFO Crash Retrievals. Clifford Stone, how are you? Fine, thank you kindly, sir. Clifford, for those not familiar with Operation Moondust, just give us the broad details of that.
5: Well. Project Moondust was the overall recovery operation of objects of unknown origin for the U.S. government. Operation Blue Fly was the actual recovery of those objects, even in foreign countries. We'd move them to a safe haven area, then we would try to go ahead and exploit the technologies involved with those objects. The official cover story was that, all these were nothing more than objects that were of Soviet origin and we were recovering these to try to determine what type of advanced technology they were using. Nothing to be further from the truth. We knew these were objects of exotic origin that did not originate on the face of this planet. And we very much so wanted to retrieve the technology behind these objects. That's why we had these programs. In 1985, both code names, Moondust and Blue Pipe, became compromised. They never did away with the programs. However, they went ahead and changed their names. In 1992, I did a report, and I sent it to various members of Congress. Uh, Our Senator Skeen, here from New Mexico, went ahead and helped me make additional copies and send them to members of Congress, because at that time, they were actually, which most Americans aren't aware of, holding an inquest as to whether the government was keeping information from Congress illegally, up to and including information on UFOs. Uh, at that time, no one knew of the NRO, which is the National Reconnaissance Organization. I like to think, and I really feel I was, part of getting the government to acknowledge the NRO existed, and part of their mission was actually to go ahead and try to get gather information on UFOs. They actually took photographs of UFOs that were classified above top secret, and that these photographs were uh, considered uh, Sensitive Department of Information and covered under the special access programs. And to this day, most Americans are not aware of that. It wasn't just until about uh, 2017, 2018, that a lot of the documentation dealing with the NRO was released publicly to the public, but most Americans didn't go after it. As a matter of fact, to be sure, in 1992, when they finally told members of Congress of a special committee, well, yeah, they did have a unit involved with the interest of things, dealing with objects in space and all this, but it's primarily to deal with what the Soviets put up there, uh, which they didn't even acknowledge as existing, and that was the National Reconnaissance Organization. In 1995, members of Congress would come back. We never heard of this. Well, in 1992, yes, they did, so then they had to go ahead and say more about it at that time. Which was a good thing because at that time they started releasing some photographs and making it clear that they had taken photographs. And they made it clear. And they used the term, which I wasn't supposed to use, but they used it unidentified flying objects.
0: Were either Moondust or Operation Blue Fly, or any of the antecedents or those that came after, did they operate alongside of Project Blue Book?
5: No. Blue Book was a public information program. To be sure, Blue Book was under a directive that stated they were not to conclude. I say again, not to conclude any UFO reported to them, evaluated and investigated by them, which they did not do the investigations, uh, was of extraterrestrial origin. To be sure, the CIA and that office within the CIA the Office of Scientific Intelligence slash Office of Scientific Investigation, they were the ones that actually did the investigation, the real investigation of UFOs. And they concluded that UFOs were real, that they were, some were, of extraterrestrial uh, origin under intelligent control by extraterrestrials, not of this world. And in 1953, it got very, very, very close that we almost had that information break out. The director of the, CIA, of the FBI, Edgar Hoover, got upset with the CIA because the Intelligence Activity Committee was very concerned about the UFOs that was being reported. On July the 19th and 20th, they picked up a UFO over Washington, D.C., it was confirmed and it was concluded this was a real solid object under intelligent control, exhibiting highly advanced technologies. Then it died because it's just one UFOs and it didn't get a whole lot of publicity. A week to the day later, on the evening of july twenty july twenty sixth, july twenty seventh, the uh, uh Washington DC area was visited by better than sixty UFOs. They scrambled fighters to try to intercept them. They had radar plots showing that these were good, solid returns. They were making intelligent maneuvers. And the big problem was now the media is asking questions, and they had to shut the media up. So on July 29th, the Pentagon held a news conference that was trying to make it clear that, no, these were nothing more than... Uh, object that was being picked up. They were were fake returns. There wasn't nothing real. And this is what was being told to the public. Three rooms down from where they had that conference, they were holding another conference where the um, members of the intelligence community was being told, hey, look, these things are real. They're serious. They seem to be under intelligent control. And if for no other reason... They could accidentally trigger a world war between the U.S. and the former Soviet states. So the whole situation is people didn't know about that. It got so serious that the uh, the Intelligence Advisory Committee met and saying, you know, we need to take this serious. There were two reports that was done that made it clear that, you know, whether you believed in UFOs or not, whether you believe they were real or not, they represented a direct physical threat to the security of the United States, and that they could lead to an accidental war. And the situation was was that the Air Intelligence Advisory Committee, or the the Intelligence Advisory Committee of the CIA, concluded there needed to be every intelligence organization within the United States government involved in getting truthful, solid uh, information on UFOs. And not just the Air Force, which the Air Force was always trying to get out of the picture. They needed to have a scientific committee to investigate UFOs.
0: Clifford, when you say all of these people were on board with this, what, what prevented this from coming forward back then, as it's coming forward now? The the information we have from the Pentagon and the Navy right now is one thing. But back then, was it subverted so it didn't leak out?
5: Well, the whole situation was was that it was hard to get documentation into the public hands to back up what i'm telling you right now that information is now available the people don't bother reading it and they they are zombie-like in that they go ahead and they will they're they're controlled the government tells them this is what you should believe this is what's true and the people believe that if they tell them that the sky is green then they're going to believe that even though we know it's blue Uh, Back in in that day, people were much, 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 much more patriotic. Blind patriotism is what we call it today. And I have a problem with blind patriotism because when I took my oath, it said, I will defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I put my life on the line. I put my career on the line. I put the possibility of me losing my family on the line. There in, uh, what, 1986, because they told me to shut up and not say no more about UFOs, not to write to any members of Congress, not to go ahead and correspond with any government agencies. And I essentially said, you know what? You don't have the right. People have the right to know the truth, and I have a right to do what I'm doing. It's not a violation of any law. They relieved me of my duty. They made me undergo a psychiatric evaluation when all that failed. They then tried to court-martial me because I was failing to comply with a lawful order. And I didn't have any lawyers on on my side. As a matter of fact, some of the people in the UFO field were uh, put it out to, and I mean, John Price is one person that was a friend of mine. If they talked to him, he had several UFO researchers saying, well, if if, if he exposes any classified information, we will report him. And true, that's a violation of uh, regulations, and it's also a violation of the Espionage acts. So what I did, I tried to make sure I wasn't, you know, violating any real laws. I knew I was coming close because I wasn't talking the party line. But the whole situation is, uh, by the grace of God, the people that really knew what I was trying to do, and a lot of people in the field, act- that behind closed doors, actually agreed with what I was trying to do. So they sent me to advance camp at Fort Lewis, Washington. And while I was gone, they released three field grade officers there at the unit that I was assigned to that was trying to do all this stuff to me.
0: Can you tell me about your initial childhood experiences that would eventually lead to you being contacted by the U.S. military?
5: Well, you know, I, I had a normal childhood all the way up to maybe, what, six, seven years old? Then I started to have some kids coming to see me, about my same age, and, you know, we played together. But, you know, the situation was they were telling me, don't tell other people about us because they can't see us. And I thought, that's crazy. I can see you. And everything went good, except when I told my mom, my dad, oh, no, no, these are just imaginary friends. I, I knew the difference between imaginary friends and what I was seeing as it was truly real. And, you know, they helped me with my homework, and we would talk about certain, and some of the things I was wondering, oh, gee, you know, this is way over our head, why are they even talking about this? But at that time, to me, they, they were just normal school kids, just like me. Then one day, I came across this little bird that just hatched from its egg, maybe a day old or something like that, and had fallen out of its nest, it broke its beak, and it was bleeding. Then I took it, and I tried, it. I put it underneath this faucet, trying to stop bleeding. And of course, that killed the little bird. I felt like a cold-blooded murderer when that happened. I didn't like killing anything, period. I mean, I didn't like killing even insects. And uh, all who that. would, right. One person that I saw as a little boy, a blonde-headed boy, about my age, about my size, all of a sudden he appeared in front of me, really shocked, saying, why do I feel what I feel in, inside of me? Why is it I want, and I want to have tears like you have in your eyes? Then I saw him turn the way he really looked, and that was the little green creature I've always known as Corona. When I saw that, that scared me to death, and I knew something was terribly, terribly wrong. I ran to try to hide, and I ran. I hid behind the couch, and he showed up there. I ran and hid behind the area, the space between the refrigerator and the sink, and I felt like these little bony hands scratching me on the head. It's like saying, you can run, but you cannot hide. Then he started very carefully, very patiently, telling me, look, we have chosen you, and I will be following you throughout your life. The day you die, barring I have no accident that takes my life, I will be around to grieve your your passing. But, you know, we need to get to where we understand that this isn't something that is, you need to be crazy about. This is something that is reality. It's going on. Then at that time now, at a very young age, about six, seven years old, I had to make a decision to go ahead and accept what was going on in my life and learn from it or fight it, which it, eventually it would drive me crazy, so I chose to try to accept it and learn from it. So from that day on, I had these events, you know, going on in my life. I couldn't deny them. I mean, when I went through school, I would even tell people about them, and of course I would make fun of these things, but I could not deny it because it would be like denying myself. If they choose to believe me or not believe me, so be it. Throughout my life, that's been my attitude. But the whole situation is is that I tried to get in the military because I was not patriotic. I, I love my country. My country is like God, country, and mom's apple pie. And we had the Vietnam War at its height at that time. And I had friends going in and dying because of the Vietnam War. And I felt I had an obligation to serve my country. So I went ahead and signed up for the, they called it the delayed entry program and I wanted to become a helicopter pilot. So while I was still in high school, I signed up for it. They sent me to Fort Hayes, Columbus, Ohio, to the MEB station there. And I underwent the physical there, and they determined at that time that I had medical problems, and I was permanently medically rejected from military service, so I was 4F. So now I knew I couldn't get in the military. I went ahead, graduated from high school there at Hayes Valley, there at Asheville, Ohio. Then I went home. I'd been home for a little less than a month. I got a notice that they want to do a reevaluation on me. I'm sitting back, why do they want to do that? Because normally that didn't happen. If you were evaluated permanently disabled, you didn't go back for a second time. But I got it, and of course my mom didn't want me to go off to war, and I said, that's not going to happen. I'm medically rejected from military service. So I went ahead. And went there. When I got there, I passed everything with flying collars except for the physical. They had a captain that was doing the evaluation of the physicals. And he was permanently there. They had a colonel that was uh, from a hospital there in Washington, D.C. And he was visiting. And he told the captain, look, this is Friday. Take your family. Fourth of July weekend, by the way. Take your family, go to Camden Park, which was an amusement park there in Huntington, West Virginia. I'll finish up the physicals here. He saved me the last. Then he called me and he says, I understand you really want to get in the service. I explained to him, I feel like I really have an obligation to serve my country.
0: I want to move ahead just because time is tight, and I know we were in the midst of discussing how you ended up in Vietnam, despite being originally disqualified or being labeled 4F. Obviously, they wanted you there, and uh, they were they were willing to move heaven and earth to do it. But I'm just wondering if we if we could maybe tie a quick ribbon on that, and then move into the actual your actual work in UFO retrieval. Well,
5: when I got in, I, I saw that there are certain things where they were trying to groom me for certain things. Like at my AIT, going in for a clerk type. typist. Well, I got to see a typewriter one day in my AIT, which was eight weeks. But I had details every other day, and most of those were over at the intelligence office, base intelligence office. And they had a person in there from Fort Belvoir, Virginia. And he brought up the subject of... Uh, how do you feel about UFOs? Well, my mama didn't raise any fools, so I says, I don't know, I don't really get much thought. So I think you probably get more thought than what you want to admit to. So he started to show me records, tried to started to show me pictures, and I noticed they were uh, marked with secret, top secret, then they'd have a slash, and they'd have uh, other words following them. And at, at some point, they could be up to 11 different words. And at that time, that was perfectly okay. But I didn't know what those meant. I knew what secret meant. I knew what top secret meant. And I said, you know, sir, I don't think you should be showing this stuff to me. He says, private, I'm not showing you anything that I don't have a reason to show you. So I went ahead, graduated from AIT, went to my first unit there at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, 36 civil affairs company, 96 civil affairs group. The first thing I did when I got to my company, I saw my first sergeant, first sergeant leaks, and I said, sir, our first sergeant, I think you should know. I can't type, but you're a clerk typist. I said, yes, first sergeant, but they didn't teach me anything. He said, no, no. you went there. It says here you can type 74 words per minute. I said, yes, first sergeant. They lied. So he went in to talk to the captain. When he went and talked to the captain, the captain went over my records, and he came out, and he asked me a strange question. Uh, what color of uniform do you have on there, private? And I says, well, green, sir, I'm in the Army, you know. He says, oh, I just want to see if he wasn't colorblind. What I didn't know at the time, my DD Form uh, 4 reflected that I had enlisted three years in the United States Air Force. That would come back to haunt me later on. So I went ahead and they decided, Look, well, if you can't type, if you're not good as a clerk, type, we need somebody as a unit NBC, uh, nuclear, biological, chemical, non-commissioned officer to take care of the NBC equipment, the fuel phones and all that. I said, okay. So they said, okay, we're going to send you uh, this school, uh, three-week course to learn what you need to know about this because it's going be to be giving you this additional duty. So I went, and when I got to school, um, everything seemed normal. I mean, we learned about NBC. The only thing that was out of the norm, they showed us some film, which, you know, it was more intelligence than what it would be anything to do with NBC. And they said, okay, here at 500 and some odd miles in space, this is planet Earth. And they went in, okay, this is the United States. And they went down, this is... New York, uh, New York City. Then they went down. This is a person sitting on a park bench in New York City, reading a newspaper. Then they went down. This is the headlines of that newspaper. All this being taken 500 plus miles in space. At that time, that type of technology wasn't supposed to exist. They never explained to us why they showed that to us. But the whole situation is. All of us was there in in my class. We all saw it. and I know not everyone was involved with UFOs, but I firmly believe, although, although I was never told, that this was part of my orientation to get me ready to be involved with UFOs. Now, I go back to my unit. When I go back to my unit, they go ahead, and we go on what's called an FTX, a field training exercise. And that was at Indiantown Gap, Pennsylvania. While we're out there, word came in that there was a crash of a Soviet fighter in that area there and we had to go out to recover. And we were going to be the NBC B team because they already had the A team already there to back up the A team. So we went ahead. I had a deuce and a half that had all my equipment in it. And there were about, what, five deuce and a half and three Jeeps that made the convoy when we went out there to that area. And when we went out to the area where the crash took place, I remember we went ahead, I started to set up, and they no, 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 you don't have to worry about it. said, we need you to do other things. And the guys that I met that I always, thereafter, I always called the colonel because I had a lot of contact with him. He said, son, I need you to take your Geiger counter, uh, APD 27. I need you to go out to the berm and call back the readings that you're getting off that Geiger counter. And I said, okay, sir. And he says, every couple of feet, I need you to call back the reading. So started off, normal background radiation, and I went a little higher, a little higher. Then I got to the berm, to the top, and I looked down. And I thought, oh, my God, this isn't a Russian craft. It was like the heel of a shoe where the rounded part, the back of the heel, went into the ground, and there was a kidney-shaped door on the side of the what you'd call the canopy of the craft. And halfway out was the body of what you would call a typical gray alien. And I immediately turned around and I said, Sir, I need an officer up here. And he went ahead and says, Just tell us what you're seeing, son. And I said, No, sir, you don't understand. I need an officer up here. What I'm seeing I just can't be real. He says, Just tell us what you're seeing. And finally I started tell him what I was seeing. And I remember saying, do you believe me? And he says, yes, son, come on back down. I went back, they made me sit in the back of the deuce and a half. And I didn't have no field phones connected up like I had at the training site that I was at initially. I just sat back there and I'm the two Prick 25 radios I had. And I watched, they came in, they had a crane lift up the craft itself, put it back on what we call a low boy, covered it with a canvas, took it out. Then I saw three stretchers, and they had three bodies on them. And what people don't understand, you, even after death, you can pick up on things. Like these entities were saying, they have families just like us. And they were recalling that they were no longer going to see their families again. And other things, you know, I'm thinking, how do I get this stuff out of my mind? How is it? I'm picking this up. This can't be real.
0: More of my conversation with Clifford Stone when Conspiracy Unlimited
1: returns. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air?
2: For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points.
3: Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air.
2: Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.
1: Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air?
2: For years and I really like it.
0: There's never been a more important time to focus on our physical well-being, build up our natural immune system, and take control of our health. That's why the mighty Aphrodite and I take a tablespoon of ESS60 from C60 Evo, every morning. ESS-60 is the consumable form of carbon-60, the miracle molecule discovered by Nobel Prize-winning chemists. ESS-60 from C60EVO is the purest form of ESS-60 on the market. They produce the formula of ESS-60 that was used in a landmark animal longevity study in Paris, where rats that were fed ESS-60 lived twice their natural lifespans, twice. ESS60 from C60 Evo is 172 times more powerful than vitamin C. It's truly a mega antioxidant. How does it make me feel? Well, I'm 56 years old and I'm pain-free, pain-free. My energy levels are through the roof and I sleep like a baby. The mighty Aphrodite is noticing the exact same benefits. ESS60 delivers better health, mental clarity and immune support experience the benefits for yourself to order go to the notes for this episode and click on the c60 evo link save five percent on your order by entering the code rs1 spec rs1 spec and if you order based on a monthly refill you'll save even more get your bottle of this miracle molecule ess 60 today from c60 evo and again Go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the C60 EVO link. Then enter the code RS1SPEC to start saving. This product has not been evaluated by the FDA and is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider.
4: As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. I guess you better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: Clifford Stone, the author of UFOs Are Real and Eyes Only, the story of Clifford Stone and UFO Crash Retrievals is here. I'm dying to ask you about this. Is, is there some kind of a contract or agreement in place between U.S. Intel and the aliens concerning the return of alien bodies that are recovered from UFO crash sites.
5: There exists an understanding, I'll put it that way, between us and our visitors that their dead will be returned to them because they have reverence for their dead just like we have reverence for our dead. So just like the ones that got killed here in Roswell, New Mexico, Mm -hmm. there was an agreement that the bodies would be returned to the cultures from which they came from. And that took place at a place they called it the Dark Side of the Moon. Mm-hmm. They're at White Sands Missile Range right outside of Alamogordo, New Mexico. The whole situation is, is that people think, okay, they were sent to uh, Wright-Patterson. They may have been, because a week or two later, that this took place. The ex- right. exchange took place. Yeah. Where the, the bodies were returned. But... They think, okay, we go ahead and we do autopsies on these bodies. We don't do autopsies. The whole situation is we realize that we don't understand the internal mechanism of these entities. So we try to get to the point where we understand. So we do what is called dissections, where we understand, oh, this is how... This works in our, our visitors. This is how this works in our visitors. But because there are several species, when I got out, I knew, that, I knew the existence of 57. And that was because of a medical book that the medical team had on the, uh, there with the uh, UFO crash recoveries. So if there were entities that were injured, we could bring their first aid till they got a medical unit there that could go ahead and do better. Right. And the closest I came to getting killed with this, it was in 1969 there at Fort Belvoir, Virginia. They took me to this location, which had a little building way out in the middle of nowhere. And they told me, okay, we have one of the visitors there. He's our guest. I go there. And when I go there, we go ahead. We have to walk through the fence, and they have guards there. Get back. There's this bill desk and a chair. And one of the entities is sitting there and he's looking down and he looks up at me and it's like you hear a voice that's in your mind. And he looked up at me and he says, I am afraid. And you know, I feel the emotion peacefully and I don't know how to explain that. But I was like, what can I do? He says, my people are coming to get me. They don't want to hurt no one here. You could help to get me out in an open area. So I went ahead, talked to a friend of mine, and I said, you need to put some wire cutters out by the back of the fence out there so I can go ahead and use them later on. And he says, what are you going to do? I said, you don't need to know that. So I convinced everyone that the entity wanted to tell me something and show me something. There can't be any people there. The guy always called the colonel, he's a little weary, but finally he went ahead, well, you know, where am I going to go? So he went ahead, took everyone out. When everyone went out, I took our visitor, took him to the back, and I started to clip like crazy to make a hole in that fence. And we got a hole in it. I put him through it. Then I heard people come bouncing, halt, 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 stop, I will shoot, stop, I will shoot. And I mean, the loudest clacking I've ever heard in my life where they were locking and loading rounds. And I knew that night, I was going to die, but anyhow, no one shot. All of a sudden, there was a craft overhead. It shined down a big bright light, I think pretty much blinded everyone. Mm-hmm. And it went on, lasted two or three seconds, then went off, and our visitor was gone. He was in the craft. Then, of course, my guy always called the colonel. We went back up. He chewed me out big time. Everyone says, well, you should have been court martialed You should have been, well, maybe I would, but there'd be a whole lot of things people would be asking about how can I be court-martialed helping a non-existent entity escape? But I went there, and I he, he said, you know, you should have let me know what was going on. I said, I couldn't. You, I, you brought me here, and you said, this entity was our guest. And we were treating him like a prisoner, and we had armed guards with weapons loaded. If he tried to make any move to escape, we would have shot and killed him. That's not a guest. Anyhow... We talked about that, and we had other discussions about it later on, I think. There was other protocol that was made up where we would no longer treat them like they were captives, that they would really be treated more like guests, and we'd try to get through to where we could do something for them.
0: Could you tell me what he looked like, this entity?
5: Yeah, he was uh, uh, on a typical gray, but he was a little more than four foot tall, and he had Cold, cold, black eyes. But it was like I could go ahead look into his eyes and I could feel the warmth of his, for lack of a better term, spirit. He didn't want to hurt anybody, but he had this fear of not seeing his family no more. And All right. I could well, identify uh, with that at the time, but less sure. than a year later I could because I was in Vietnam and we were in the pitch of several different
0: battles. Because you have such a, a vast collection of government documents related to this issue. Do you have photographs or film footage, video footage, of any of these entities that you're not able to release? I Did you hear that me?
5: question truthfully, oh. it puts me in harm's way. Hopefully ah, oh, right. you can understand what I'm trying to say there. But I will say you this. In 73, we went out to a field where there's allegedly a craft. When we got there, there's no craft, but there are all kinds of strange rocks out there. We formed a scrimmage line. We were told to go and pick up any of the objects we find to be very, very strange. I went ahead as I'm going through. I knew that this time I was planning to get out of the Army for good. But, I mean, with all the events that happened in my life, I didn't know how I could ever explain this to people. Even though some of my friends, I showed them, I'm about to say what you were asking, I showed them pictures. I showed them documents. But I had permission to do that. So now they knew, even though I sounded crazy when I was a kid in high school, now they knew I was working with it, officially. And I had the documentation to prove it. One of the photo albums I had, as a matter of fact, was from uh, uh, um, Kodak, I think, and it, it was called Blue Book, which I thought was ironic. But I went ahead and I'm thinking, okay, you know, and I wasn't supposed to keep any of that stuff, but I thought i got to have something. Oh, these rocks were highly unusual. Never seen anything like them in my life. i never seen anything like them afterwards. But I thought, if I get one of these, I can prove to people that I was involved in something. So I picked one up, put it in my boot, and left the field there. As we returned back to my unit, I started to worry about it, thinking, you know what? This is so sensitive. They thought that I had this. They would probably go so far to take my life to make sure it doesn't get out in the public. So I kept it, and I had people—people people didn't even know they were my friends—that held onto this rock for me. And I didn't say anything about it until about a year or two ago. And then I brought it out, and some of the people that I brought it out to—they wanted out. They tested it. A guy, as they had some equipment that they tested there, and they found that. It would actually reverse magnetic fields. It would go ahead and be magnetic at times, then it would be non-magnetic. And at least three people told me that they thought that this rock had a personality of its own. But it had high strangeness. My friend from Bulgaria, he would have to tell you he thought there was things strange about it, too. He also ran tests the same way. We hit it with a magnet. It showed to be magnetic. And all of a sudden, it wasn't magnetic anymore. We checked the magnet that we used out. The magnet itself was no longer magnetic. And it would change the magnetic fields. Where it was a north-south magnetic field, it would reverse it to a south-north magnetic field. Uh, It would make a compass spin like it's going crazy. But, yeah, I have that. And I do have some photographs that I'll tell you right now. I have some lectures from uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek where it makes it clear he believed UFOs were real. And there's slides sets of that. If I don't get those converted into something else soon, they're going to be lost to prosperity forever. And All I hate right, that so- because these are really important to future generations, so they can understand that this great man, who for the longest of time felt that UFOs would go the way of the sea serpent, stepped back and finally said, you know, we have to start listening to these people and not saying they're all crazy. Something's going on.
0: So I, I want to go back to that agreement where alien bodies are returned. How does that work, or how did that work exactly?
5: Well, exactly how it works, I wasn't involved in the internal network of that. But the whole situation is, like, if we're on our way to a crash site, mm-hmm. actually this happened in November 1963, an incident right out there at, uh, uh, well, in California, what's the name of that airbase out there? Edwards. Edwards Air Force Base. And it actually, there was a file in Blue Book before they pulled it, where they had a UFO that, came down like a falling leaf, landed on a dry lake bed up there. They sent a strike team, which is a heavily armed security force, out to secure the craft that went down. Another craft appeared and came down over it. When this happened, the strike team was uh, notified and said, stay in place, don't go any closer. Then when the other craft looked Exactly like the person was on the ground, got over it, I don't know how many feet or so above it. It started to go up slowly and gradually, and the craft underneath, it started to wave like, still like an old leaf being blown by the wind, and was lifted up until it was totally out of sight. Um, that right there, they, they launch rescue teams just like if we have a plane crash in the wilderness. We go looking for that aircraft and for survivors. They do the same thing. And one thing that people need to understand, they are highly evolved and intellectual cre- creatures. They aren't, you know, monkeys out in the jungle. Okay. And all too often, you know, we say, oh, well, you know, they crash. They don't really care what happens. Well, no, no, no they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a little and a person very close to me and you know of, or she'd have to tell your story. Uh, but I had a little crystal, and I could hold that in my hand. I could see three-dimensional uh, mm-hmm. structures and everything, which if I'd think about it, and they'd show up, dealing with their own planet. And uh, other things is you become, I guess they call it, like being a sensitive. When I worked at Job Corps, I could pick up things with my kids out there. And they always said, uh, they said that I was uh, sensitive and called me something else. Because they knew I had this, and I'm gonna call it a gift. A lot of people call it a curse. But they said, well, why don't you go buy lottery numbers and win money? And I made it clear to them, you know what? This right here is a gift where I can help you people. I can't make myself rich. I can't do anything to improve myself. But the situation is, when things are happening, I can help you. And I had one young lady one night, she was going to kill herself. I was at home. It was my day off. I couldn't escape that she was going to kill herself. So I went ahead and I went out to work. And, you know, the security guards are well, everything's okay. You don't worry about it, Tony. Well, we went looking. And we went by the female dorm. And she was sitting out at the smoke shack and something told me I needed to stop talking to her. So I went talk to her mom didn't want to take her back dad didn't want to take her back she had no place to go in a week she was going to be graduating from the center and we've got
0: about a minute here clifford i'm sorry to rush you we've got about a minute here
5: okay i gave her my phone she went ahead called her grandma grandma was going to take her so i helped pay for her to get to her grandma the next day i came in she told me says you didn't even was working yesterday why did you come in And she told me, you knew I was going to kill myself last night. I says, yeah, I heard that. She says, you know how you tell me that you feel guilty every day of your life because other people died in Vietnam and you lived. Have you ever thought maybe God spared you so he knew when you got here with us, you would help us? And she said, I asked God last night for help, and he didn't come. I turned to her and I smiled and I said, you know, God was busy. So in his stead, he sent me. And you know, the girl now, she's married, she has two children, and she's told her whole family about that night.
0: Clifford, it's a remarkable story. Thank God you were there, and uh, really appreciate your time. Clifford Stone, thank you so much.
5: Thank you, sir, and forgive me for getting emotional, but you know what? When you live this stuff, It's part of your life.
0: Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash with a few words about an upcoming episode. It's time once again to welcome Colleen Forgas, our nutritional expert and the manager at Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary. Colleen, welcome.
1: Hi Richard, how are you today?
0: I'm terrific, but a lot of people are in a bit of a panic, a lot of people are stressed with this whole coronavirus thing, but people just need to keep calm. What do we have to help people calm themselves?
3: Richard, there's a product called MagSu, mags being short for magnesium, and this is a powder which is a fat-acting, calming, raspberry lemonade-flavored powder. Magnesium is important for over 325 functions in the body. It helps to promote a restful sleep, it's good for muscle tone and function, it helps us to balance our stress response, good for blood pressure, blood sugar, digestion, hormones. It has a wide variety of things that are important for the body, but especially helps with stress.
0: Terrific. To get your mag soothe, just go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the full script dispensary button. Remember, all orders receive 10% off and orders of $50 or more ship for free. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Coming up next time, a comic book illustrator inspired by the great Rod Serling discusses the importance and influence of the twilight zone
2: you know i call the twilight zone and serling the father of american popular culture because you could name me anything in the fantasy science fiction horror or related field like Mad Men, and i could trace it back to serling and the twilight zone in less than six degrees of serling
0: until then i'm richard sarat so long for now